It's good to be together on this Lord's Day. I want to thank each of you for choosing to be here. I want to thank Mark uh, for this opportunity. It's one I certainly don't take for granted and uh, certainly take uh, very seriously. It's always my prayer and intent that the things that we study will be in strict accordance with the will of God, that we might be edified and uplifted and built up in our faith, and that above all, God might be glorified by our time together today. In fact, our study this morning is going to be very expository in nature. We'll be spending the majority of our time in two particular passage, uh, passages. Uh, later on, we'll look in the third and fourth chapters of the book of James and spend the bulk of our study uh, in those passages. If you want to go ahead and mark uh, that spot in your Bible. And then we'll also begin with a reading from Galatians, the fifth chapter, and we'll also get into chapter six. As this morning, we talk about bearing the fruit of the Spirit in our life. Uh, being a spiritual person, what does that mean? And how do we go about living the spiritual life? Because there are a lot of misconceptions about what that means and what that entails. What's it mean to be a spiritual person and live this life? Often people will talk about somebody and they'll describe them as spiritual. Maybe they're not even a Christian, but they'll say they're a very spiritual person. Mystic Eastern religions and yoga and trans, uh, meditation. I talk about, all oh, that person's so spiritual. We encounter Hindus when we go to India and people will talk about how spiritual they are. Well, not in the sense the Bible defines being spiritual. Maybe they're very religious, very zealous, devout adherents to their religion, Paul told the Athenians, you're very superstitious, you're very religious, but you're not spiritual. At least not in the strict and definite sense that the Bible presents being spiritual and living a spiritual life. And I think as we survey society, as we survey the church, maybe when we survey our home, and we take a good, long, hard look in the mirror, maybe we realize we're not always bearing the fruit of the Spirit, at least not in abundance. Maybe we're not always living the spiritual life. Maybe we're not always as spiritual as God has designed and willed that we be. So Galatians chapter 5, beginning in verse 16. Paul writes, I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let's not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual... Restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. And so as we have here first this list of the works of the flesh, and we have other lists like this presented throughout the Bible, these terrible things, and we ask the question, why do people do those things? Why do I do those things? Why do I do those things? These works of the flesh contrasted with the fruits of the Spirit. 
And it ought to get our attention, as he said, those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And that doesn't mean that whenever we do one of these things and we make a mistake, we repent, we try to change, we do our best, that we lose our salvation. But the key word there is practice. Those who practice, that's something we do habitually that we give ourselves over to. Consistently, long term, we're not trying to repent, we're not trying to change. And those who practice such things, who live such a life, will not inherit the kingdom of God. And that ought to get our attention. Reminds me of another list in 2 Peter 1, very similar concept. Peter puts forth on the Christian graces. Add to your faith virtue and to virtue knowledge, etc., etc. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that you should be neither bare nor unfruitful in the Lord. You'll never fall and you'll live the spiritual life. That's what we're talking about this morning. And so we see here the works of the flesh contrasted with the fruit of the Spirit. And you can correlate each of these works of the flesh with their opposite characteristic of the fruit of the Spirit. For example, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness. You can tie that to temperance. Maybe even love, etc. And so as we look at this list, it's not surprising that it starts with love. Because Jesus said love is the greatest commands. In fact, in Galatians 5, the verses right prior to where he picked up in verse 16, Paul says that love is the fulfilling of the entire law. It's the summation of the entire law. And it's love the way God defines it. The Greek word agape, unique to the Bible, presented by the Bible, the concept of the way God loves us, the way that we're to love God and love other people, agape love. And as you study that term in that concept, it's not this Hollywood definition of love that we fall into and out of based on our feelings and emotions but it's love as a choice love is a decision love is patient love is kind first corinthians 13 and those characteristics imply that it's not always easy it wouldn't start with patience and long suffering if it was always easy love is a choice A choice to treat people in a certain way regardless of whether or not that's reciprocated. Thank goodness that's how God loved us when we were unlovable and unworthy and undeserving. God chose to love us. That's what makes loving our enemies possible. If love was defined the way the world defines it as a feeling and a warm fuzzy and affections, that would be impossible. But if love is a choice, I can give a cup of water in his name. I want to tell you love is the motivation... For living the spiritual life. Love is the reason. Love is the why. Love is the cause. Love is the inspiration. And I submit to you that without a love for God and an intense love for God and our fellow man, we will not and we cannot live the spiritual life. We cannot bear the fruit of the Spirit. We can only bear and produce the works of the flesh. And it's because of this love for God and love for our fellow man that we can have joy. We can have joy that Jesus says is based on righteous living, not that we're perfect in that, but as we strive to submit to the will of God and follow His will for us in our life, there is peace, there is purpose, there is satisfaction that we can't have consistently and long-term anywhere else. And we have joy. A joy that transcends our present circumstances and lifts us above the trials and tribulations. A joy that transcends the present circumstances because it's based on spiritual reality. And we have joy, inexpressible and glorious. A joy that we cannot find in the world, as Solomon learned in Ecclesiastes. Those things that rob us of joy and disturb our peace. 
It's counterintuitive. We think that we can find joy in this pursuit of happiness, which is a pursuit of selfishness. And the more we seek it, the less we find. The more miserable and depressed, Solomon says, vanity of vanities. Because God did not create us to find joy and satisfaction in serving ourselves and the things of this world, but in serving God and serving our fellow man. And because we have this love and this joy in our lives, we can have the peace that passes understanding. As we have peace with God and peace with our fellow man, we can begin to have peace within. And these things build upon each other and are interconnected. Now because I have love and joy and peace in my heart, I can be long-suffering. I can live a life of patience and endurance. And I can be long-suffering and gracious and merciful towards others as I reflect upon and appreciate the mercy and grace of God towards me. And I can forgive as Christ has forgiven me because I'm living the spiritual life. I'm living the spiritual life. I'm not short-tempered. I'm long-tempered. And it allows me to be good and gentle and kind towards others. It allows me to live a life of faith. Not just belief in God, belief in the Bible, belief in Jesus, but this word, this concept includes more than that. James 2, James talks about it seen in our conduct. The word here often translated faithfulness. Stewardship of the manifest blessings of God. Trustworthy, dependable. Living a life of fidelity, living a life of integrity. Because I'm living the spiritual life. Meekness. And I submit to you, it's my conviction and observation, the people who are the most spiritual, the people who produce the most fruits of the Spirit, the people who are really living the spiritual life are the people who are the most meek. It takes meekness to say, I have a problem, or I need to do better, I need to be more fruitful, I need to be more spiritual, to treat people with meekness. Jesus said in the Beatitudes, blessed are the meek. Temperance. He finishes with temperance, self-control. and We can have all so many wonderful qualities in our life, but if we don't have temperance and self-control, nothing matters. This inner restraint to outward compulsion. How? We read in Galatians 5, verse 16 and 24, we've got to crucify our desires and crucify the flesh, and we can begin to experience and watch the fruit grow. We cannot live the spiritual life if we haven't learned to live and stay within the boundaries. This inner control to outward compulsion. And while we might not manifest all these qualities perfectly in abundance every day of our life, in our imperfection, they should overall be characteristic of who we are long term over time. Not just fruits of the Spirit, Individually, but these things all combine to be the fruit of the Spirit and allow us to be a spiritual person and live the spiritual life. You know, fruit reveals what's within. Fruit always reveals the cause. Fruit always reveals the source. And fruit is a natural process of inner life. What does our fruit say about us? And so with that concept understood, and as we've looked at these characteristics of a spiritual person living the spiritual life, I want to talk about what it means to be led by the Spirit. Now, it's my understanding that Titus recently gave a sermon on this, so that's good news for you. That means that we won't have to spend a lot of time dwelling on this point, and we can move along. But what does it mean to be led by the Spirit? I want to make a few observations about this, because again, there are a lot of misconceptions about this concept. In fact, I think many of the things Titus presented 
uh, were things that actually presented in, in parts one and two. This was a series I actually did in Amarillo. We're actually doing part three, <laughs> kind of doing this backwards. But in part one, we talked about miraculous gifts of the Spirit, the purpose of those gifts, and helping the church get off the ground, up and running, and reach maturity to inspire the apostles uh, to reveal the revelation of God. And once that was accomplished, we have all things that pertain to life and godliness in this book. We don't need any additional revelation. We don't need those gifts anymore. Those things serve their purpose. And often many of the proof texts that people put forward as they claim to be led by the Spirit and God talking to them and directing them apart from the Word of God today, when you look at the context of those passages, they were addressed specifically to the apostles. Those weren't general promises that were to be perpetual. And we shouldn't expect those gifts today. We have everything that we need in that book. And if we don't, if the Spirit still has to reveal things to God to us today because He didn't do a good enough job 2,000 years ago, it begs the question, is He going to be infallible in speaking to us today when He apparently was fallible then? didn't get the job done. What about when people are led by the Spirit to do things that obviously and blatantly contradict what the Spirit revealed to us in that book? How do you explain that? What's the rule of interpretation? What about when two different groups claiming to have the Spirit are doing not only things that contradict the Word of God, but contradict each other? And I suppose we could put it to a test. We could take two people claiming to be led by the Spirit and we could put them in separate rooms. And we could ask them to expound and explain and interpret a challenging passage in the Word of God. In one room we could provide a Bible and other resources to look up words and do research and dig in. And in the other room we could provide nothing but a mystical experience. Who do you suppose is going to have a better interpretation of that passage? How do we explain that? How do we explain that you don't find Christians where the Word of God is not gone? Throughout the book of Acts, faith comes from hearing and hearing by the Word of God, Romans 10, 17. The sword of the Spirit, Ephesians 6, 17. The instrument, the agency by which the Spirit convicts sinners and changes lives is the Word of God. Throughout Acts, humans teaching humans. Humans teaching humans. Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Well, many people talk about being led by the Spirit. They talk about the Spirit speaking to them, talk about the Spirit leading them apart from the Word, taking over their emotions, taking over their feelings, maybe. But that's the exact opposite of what we see the Bible presenting as being led by the Spirit. Romans 8 talks about according to the Spirit, according to the Spirit, being led by the Spirit of God. How? By mortifying the deeds of the body, by mortifying the flesh, the exact opposite of following your heart. Following your flesh, following your feelings and emotions. The Bible said that's the last thing in the world you need to follow because your heart is wicked and desperately de- uh, wicked and deceitful. Who can trust it? Who can know it? That's the last thing that you need to make your moral compass. If you want to be led by the Spirit, you suppress your feelings and your desires and you submit to the will of God. You put away those subjective things and you follow the objective Word of God. That's how you're led by the Spirit. Mark 4, the parable of the sower, Jesus said the sower sows the word. The seed of the kingdom, the seed that contains life and the potential for life. Germination, the potential for fruit, that which produces fruit and allows us to live the spiritual life and bear the fruit of the Spirit is the word of God. And so then there's virtually no difference between the fruit of the Spirit in our lives and the fruit that's produced by applying the Spirit's teachings in our lives. It's the same thing. 
Might not be exciting enough for some. Might prefer to have that accomplished miraculously or through some emotional experience, but Paul made it very clear that the fruit of the Spirit consists of certain moral and spiritual qualities. It's actions that we take. It's choices that we make. It's a life that we live. It's things that we do. Galatians 5.25, we read that this life in Christ is pictured as a line that we're walking on as directed by the Spirit. And that line, that standard, is the Word of God. And so every time I submit to and I'm led by and following the teachings of that book, I'm being led by the Spirit because the Spirit revealed those things to me. Every time I refuse to follow the teachings of that book, I'm resisting the Spirit, refusing to be led by the Spirit. Every situation where I apply the golden rule in my life is a situation where I'm led by the Spirit because the Spirit revealed that rule to me. If led by the Spirit, I'm going to pray, I'm going to study, I'm going to assemble, I'm going to evangelize, I'm going to serve, I'm going to maintain good works, etc., 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 because that's what the Spirit has led me to do. That's what God leads me to do by His Spirit through His Word. And so what then prevents us from doing that? What inhibits the spiritual fruit in our life? What prevents us from living the spiritual life? I suppose we could go back to Galatians 5 and look at those works of the flesh. We could also go back to Mark chapter 4 in the parable of the sower as Jesus describes the things that extinguish our spiritual life that prevent us from being a spiritual person, from bringing forth fruit to abundance. Verse 19, he talks about thorny ground. Those people, because of the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, the desire for other things, entering in, choke the word, and they become unfruitful. Jesus says it all boils down to self-centeredness and worldliness. That's the cause. And it's interesting as we now go to the book of James and look at these outlines James gives us from what prevents us from living the spiritual life and what allows us to live the spiritual life, James says the exact same thing. He echoes what Jesus said in Mark chapter 4. James chapter 3, verse 13, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it's earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Think again about those lists and the works of the flesh, and we ask the question, why do I do those things? I can reflect upon virtually every bad decision I've made in my life can be tied to pride and selfishness in some way. Every time. They are the 2-4-D. They are the roundup of the fruit of the Spirit. And they are the fertilizer for the works of the flesh. James continues in chapter 4, From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence even of your lust that war in your members? Ye lust and have not, ye kill and desire to have, and cannot obtain, ye fight and war, yet ye have not because ye ask not. You ask and receive not because you ask amiss, that you may consume it upon your lust. He said, where's the problem stem from? Where's the problem come from? He said, your lust, your desires. And that word for desire there in the Greek is hedonis, where we get the term hedonism. And hedonism is simply 
doing what you want to do. Being selfish, follow your heart, they say. Do what makes you happy at the expense of everyone else's happiness. Self-esteem and self-indulgence and self-gratification, that's the problem. That's what produces the works of the flesh in our life because we're focused on self instead of focused on God and focused on other people. And we adopt and embrace this worldview of the world revolves around me. And the result is we're very unhappy, we're unfulfilled, we live a very chaotic, conflicted, off-centered life because we're self-centered. I'll tell you, every conflict, whether that's in marriage, in the home, in the church, escalating up to world wars, we think all these lives that are destroyed by conflict, whether in the home or even uh, in fighting and war physically, just a waste. Just a waste. All stem from the same problem. Somebody wanted what they didn't have or thought they didn't have. So James continues in verse 4, Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. And I suppose it's hard to distinguish between selfishness and worldliness. Somebody selfish, probably worldly. Somebody worldly, probably selfish. And James says that when you begin on, on friendly terms with the world, you get on unfriendly terms with God, that's not where you want to be. It never turns out good. God always wins. We're told to not love the world, 1 John 2. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. The word for love there is not agape that we talked about earlier. Often it's the word philia. Philadelphia, brotherly love. This love that we have, this affection we have with someone we have common interest with, we are brothers with. Why in the world would we have such a relationship with the world and the things in the world? What do we have in common with the world? Maybe more than we care to admit. James says you ask for the wrong things. You ask amiss. How often do we find people claiming to be led by the Spirit on TV or wherever, and they are always telling you about all the carnal benefits they're reaping because they're living the spiritual life. Wealth and health. Prosperity gospel. All God cares about is for us to be rich physically, apparently. That's the epitome of what James is talking about here. He said these selfish, worldly petitions to God are fruitless petitions. And I want to tell you self-centeredness and worldliness will not allow you to live the spiritual life. So what stimulates the fruit of the Spirit in our life? What fertilizes the fruit of the Spirit in our life? What allows us to live the spiritual life? James gives us an outline for that. James chapter 4, verse 6, But he gives more grace, wherefore he saith, God resists the proud, but gives grace unto the humble. Skipping down to verse 10, Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. And so as we look... At this outline James is going to give us for living the spiritual life, it begins and ends, he bookends it with humility. And that shouldn't be surprising because, again, if I'm going to recognize the works of the flesh in my life, I'm going to recognize I need to bear more fruit of the Spirit and more abundance. If I need to be more spiritual and live a more spiritual life, that's going to require a great deal of humility for me to be willing to admit that, for me to see myself before God the way God sees me. For me to see others before God the way God sees them. And that's very humbling and that's very motivating. And this is what allows us to do what James tells us to do next. He says, submit to God. 
submit to God. When you find the commands to submit to God throughout the Bible, almost every time it presents along that the concept of obeying God, following his will. Almost every time, that's why we don't like to do that. (laughs) We don't like to submit. From a young age, being Americans, maybe being Texas Americans, nobody's going to tell us what to do. We don't submit to authority. You can get on Facebook, see many members of the church. Things they post reflect very clearly that they don't want to submit. I tell you, that's not the attitude the Bible says is going to allow you to live the spiritual life. Think about from a young age how we don't like to submit, and I can think about many examples and illustrations of that with my own children. I want to give you an experience or a story or, uh, from... I don't know, it's been a year, maybe more. Um, and I want to preface it. It's my uh, oldest son's fourth birthday. So before I say something bad about him, I told this story in Amarillo a while back, and he was so excited after church that I talked about him, not realizing that it wasn't the most flattering story. <laughs> so because his birthday, I want to say that, you know, he's, we, he's been a tremendous blessing, joy. He, they're both, you know, somewhat easy. Kyson's been very low-maintenance, very compliant most of the time, just naturally, not necessarily taking any credit for that. But he certainly has his moments. And I want to share a particular moment uh, with you when we had a Come to Jesus meeting with Kyson a while back. It was time for bed, and they usually do pretty good at bedtime, but there are exceptions, and they drag their feet, and they have figured out, Kyson has figured out, that if he has to read a Bible story, that will prolong the inevitable because we have a hard time saying no to that. And so we had read a lot of books, and it was time to go to bed. It was past time to go to bed. I told him, you need to hurry up and put those books up, and we need to get in bed. He didn't want to do that. He began to whine and complain and moan and make excuses, and there was a pile of books sitting right by the cabinet where the books go, and he began to tell me he couldn't carry all those books. And that's when the fruit of temperance began to be inhibited, And I was having a hard time being long-suffering and patient. I was getting sucked into an argument with a three-year-old, which is never good. (laughs) And I began to try to reason with him. You don't need to carry all those books. They're sitting right by the shelf. You need to put the books in the shelf and go to bed. And he wouldn't do it. He dug in. He was not going to submit. He was going to test the boundary. That's a problem. You know, we try to have a little bit of grace towards carelessness, even though that has to be dealt with too. But that's a heart problem. That rebellion and refusal to submit to authority, that's a heart problem. And that's a big deal. I think we recognize it's not only the children that can act like that. In the case of my boys, uh, you know where they get that. Their mother uh, grew up here. (laughs) But I think sometimes God looks at us and must be thinking I'm dealing with a three-year-old. You know, and you just, you have these moments where you're just going, really? That's how you want this to go down? This is the dumbest thing in the world. And you're going to dig in. That's why, you know, we had been advised and we decided early on we weren't going to count. Not that there's anything wrong with counting, if that's your judgment. Um, but we weren't going to give them three and a half, four and a half, five and a half, six and a half seconds to do what's right and flirt with the boundary. Partial submission's not submission. You don't get to pick and choose what you're going to submit to and what you're not going to submit to. That's not how submission works. 
You know, whenever we go on road trips to Oklahoma and we tell the boys to watch a movie, we get 100% compliance. Kyson has his headphones on for six hours. What about when it's time to pick up the toys? What about when my will doesn't match thy will? That's when we submit. That's when the rubber meets the road. I want to tell you, submit even when it hurts. Even when it's hard, especially when it's hard. And the fruit will explode and you'll live the spiritual life. It says submit and then you've got to resist. And that seems to be a contradiction, but it's not. If we understand what we submit to, who we submit to, and who we resist. Submit to God and resist the devil. We don't want to do that either. Resist our desires, our feelings, our selfishness, our opinions. You know, as you study the Greek word here, it's a military term. It means to dig in, like my boys did. To dig in, to make a stand, to fight the good fight of faith, to resist. If we don't ever feel any pressure, maybe it's because we're not putting up enough resistance. We're promised if we'll submit to God and resist the devil, he'll flee from us. We'll have a way of escape, and we can begin to draw near to God. And to do that requires maybe that we have to change our focus Maybe we have to change our direction. We have to draw away from the things that aren't close to God. The entertainment, the relationships, the activities that are drawing us in the opposite direction. And we have to change our direction. We have to change our focus. Are you close to God this morning? Are you? How do you know? You ask somebody, are you close to God? Just like when you ask them, are you saved? What's the objective evidence of that? Very often the response is subjective. I just feel in my heart. I just feel in my heart. What in the world does that mean? That's a concept that's completely foreign to the Bible. Now I'm not saying that there's not a byproduct of feelings of doing the right thing. We talked about joy earlier. But just feeling... That you're close to God doesn't make you close to God in and of itself. Jacob felt that God wasn't close, and he was. Surely God's not in this place, and he was. Samson felt God was with him, and he wasn't. Our feelings are not reliable. Barometers of that. How do you know you're close to God this morning? Notice here, James says it's not something that we just feel. It's humbling ourselves. It's submitting. It's resisting. It's drawing near to God. Cleansing our hands, purify our hearts. It's not something we just feel. It's something we do. Submitting to God in obedience is the proof of our spiritual fidelity. Jesus said in John 14, 23, If, conditional, if a man love me, he will keep my words. And my Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. How do we know we're close to God? How do we know we're close to Jesus? If you keep my commandments and all of our imperfection. He says, draw near to God, and we do that by cleansing our hands. That reminds me of the Levitical priesthood and how they had to wash up before they entered the tabernacle into the presence of God. They had to clean up. Put sin away from you. Paul says, put off the old man and put on the new man. We have to clean up how? Purify your heart. If hands are symbolic of the instrument by which we do things, the heart determines what the hands do. And so both the source and the means have to be purified. And then we can begin to draw near to God. He said, don't be double-minded. Don't be duplicitous. It's a nice way maybe of saying don't be a hypocrite. Jesus said you can't be half all in. You can't have it both ways. 
And so we have to be focused. We have to eliminate the distractions in our life. What makes you less intelligent? Smoking certain things that have been legalized certain places, if you catch my drift, smoking those things. Losing a night of sleep or trying to email while talking on the phone. Research actually shows it's the latter. Distractions will decrease your IQ by 15 to 20 points. Somebody says, oh, that doesn't sound like much. I've got plenty to spare. That'll take you from the average adult male to an eight-year-old child because you're not focused. Research also shows that those who are highly mature and intelligent are able to block out the background larger objects and focus on smaller objects in the foreground. And I submit to you that same concept applies spiritually for highly mature and intelligent Christians. You ever watch somebody trying to walk while distracted or walking while texting? They change their gait. It's like they're in the marching band and there's a hydrant at every step. And that's why we have videos of people walking into plants and walking into walls and walking into water, fount- or in, into water fountains. I was in a wedding a few years ago, a good friend of mine, and it was a huge church, and there was a baptistry on the stage that I had my eye on the whole time. And we were practicing, and all of a sudden we heard a splash. And his aunt had been taking pictures while walking, and she had fallen in. I've never seen someone get out of a baptistry faster than her. She was so humiliated. And I felt bad for her, and the family felt bad for her until they realized she was actually okay. And then they were relentless. They began to talk about her getting rebaptized and things like that. It was, but that's what happens. We lose focus. We don't pay attention and we fall in. What about walking into traffic? Is that funny? What about distracted driving, texting while driving? Is that funny? It affects not only me, it affects those that I impact. And I submit to you, when I'm not focused in my home, when I'm not focused in the church, when I'm not focused when I'm out in the world, it affects not only me, it affects those that I impact. And the results are devastating. But we always think that we're not as distracted as we are. What about spiritually? Studying, praying, evangelizing, ministering. Are we focused? Really? Leading people to Christ? We always think that we're more focused than we actually are. You know, I'm a high-functioning multitasker. Just don't ask my wife. She tries to have a conversation with me, and I'm working on a sermon, watching the ball game, and playing with the kids. And I think, man, I'm filling her love bank. Intimate conversation. Sometimes we need to turn things off, and we need to disconnect, and we need to make time, as she just told Martha, for the needful things. And we need to get rid of the junk and the background music. And we have to live intentionally and deliberately if we're going to live the spiritual life. We have to focus. And I think the key in that is our heart and mind. Don't be conformed to the world. Be transformed by your mind, by the renewing of your mind, by the will of God. Our mind has been in submission to our body. We've got to flip that if we're going to live the spiritual life. To be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. The ESV says, set the mind on the spirit. Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 10. We have to identify those strongholds, those philosophies and worldviews that exalt itself against the knowledge of Jesus. And we have to take every thought captive to obey Christ. Kelsey and I, when we got married for a while, we watched the show Biggest Loser. And you see some amazing transformations physically in people. What's the cause of that? Well, the correlation is you get what you put in. The amount of exercise. And I submit to you that same concept applies spiritually. If you want to be more spiritual, if you want to bear more fruit in your life, 
correlation is you need to get involved in more spiritual activity. Renewing your mind by the will of God. I want to tell you, there's enough in here and in the kingdom of God to occupy your heart and your mind and cleanse your hands for a lifetime. We just need to get busy. Finally, notice what James says in James 4, verse 9. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. And he goes on to talk about don't be frivolous about life. Don't be presumptuous to think you have so much time because it's running out. You got this one shot, this one life to make the most of it. You don't know how much time you have. Your life is like this vapor. It's here today and it's gone tomorrow. And you need to quit being frivolous. You need to quit laughing. That's the problem. I think that's the problem with society. It's always been the problem. Second Peter 3, mockers and scoffers. Nothing's going to happen. Nothing's going to change. The Lord's not coming back. And we laugh. We laugh at the dirty jokes of the water cooler. We laugh and find amusement and entertainment. We don't, we, we don't tolerate it. We don't just tolerate it. We find amusement in it. And we watch shows that portray adultery and fornication and the breaking up of homes and selfishness and pride. We find that funny. And we laugh. Somebody tells us about going out and painting the town red and how dumb they acted because they were inebriated. We find that so amusing. It's not funny. We lower the bar and we lower the standard so that we can jump over. We lower the bar for ourselves. We lower the bar in the church. We lower the bar for our children. And we say, oh, it's okay. Not a big deal. And I get there's a time and place for encouragement when someone's down and forgiveness. I understand that. But we begin to enable, we begin to make excuses. Oh, it's okay. Drunkenness, immorality, immodesty, dressing a certain way at the swimming pool, but everybody else is doing it. It's okay. Think God finds it funny? Our lack of self-control? Sent his son to die on the cross because of it? You think Jesus found it funny as he hangs on the cross because of our sin? It's not funny. And James says, don't laugh if your heart and your hands are stained with sin. It's not funny. And he said, you need to not be frivolous about this life because it's here today and it's gone tomorrow. Party's not going to last forever. We need to take it to heart. That's why Paul says in Galatians 6, Be not deceived, God is not mocked, for whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall the flesh reap corruption, but he that soweth to the Spirit shall the Spirit reap life everlasting. And let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. As we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are the household of faith. You reap what you sow. This fundamental law of reproduction. You want oranges? You better take orange seed and plant it, produce an orange tree. Sow the flesh, you're going to reap corruption. And so many people want the blessings of the spiritual life, want the blessings of the fruit of the spirit life, but they're seeking those things in the works of the flesh. You reap what you sow. And so as we have this conflict between our flesh and our spirit, between the works of the flesh and the fruit of the spirit, we want to know who's going to win the fight. Who's going to win control for our heart and our mind and our life? Who wins? There's a story that stuck with me for several years now about a man who had two dogs, and he would fight those dogs, and he would always predict correctly which dog would win the fight. Another man asked him, how do you always know who's going to win? 
said, it's really simple. Whatever dog I fed wins. I tell you, that's the same concept spiritually. You want to know who's going to win the fight? This battle? What kind of life you're going to live? What kind of person you're going to be? Whatever one you feed is going to win the fight. Feed your soul. And as we offer an invitation, I want to tell you, you cannot live the spiritual life but by the blood of Jesus Christ. People talk about being spiritual and having these qualities of the fruit of the Spirit. You might can do some of those things inconsistently without being a Christian, without being in Christ, but you can't do it consistently and long-term. And ultimately, we all had the works of the flesh that we've committed. And the only solution for that is the blood of Jesus. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. In Christ alone, my hope is found. Jesus said, you have to abide in me to bring forth much fruit. Without me, you can do nothing. Without me, you can do nothing. And so he says, you've got to believe, you've got to repent, you've got to change, you've got to be born again in the kingdom of God. Crucifying that old man, washed in the blood of Jesus, resurrected to walk with him in newness of life. And you can begin that spiritual life today. Maybe you're here and you've made that commitment previously, maybe you need to renew it. Starting with humility, saying, I've got a problem and I need help. And I need to be more spiritual. And I need more fruit of the Spirit in my life. I need to live the spiritual life. And it starts with humility that allow you to submit and resist and draw near to God and cleanse your hands and purify your hearts. James says, confess your faults to another. Pray for one another. That's part of living the spiritual life. And so if you need to bear the fruit of the Spirit in your life today, if you want to be more spiritual, if you need to live a more spiritual life, the Lord offers you this invitation. Will you come and have a seat on the front as we stand and sing together?